Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We continue our study in Ephesians. Our text is on page 1823 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. We're going to look at four verses today. There's four imperatives, and these four imperatives give us insight into what it means to walk in wisdom. As you listen to the sermon, you should ask, am I one who walks in God's wisdom? In order to see the context, if you've not been with us during this series, I do want to read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, as well as verses 8 and 10, and then we'll read 15 through 18. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, or walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 8, for you were once darkness, but you now are light in the Lord. Live or walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Now verse 15, be very careful then how you live or walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to wastefulness, debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Pray with me now. Father, we ask you to open our eyes that we would see marvelous truths in your word. We would understand what it means to walk in wisdom. Holy Spirit, would you not only inspire us, but also change us this morning, that we could see the beauty of Christ, to be strengthened as the body of Christ, and that we could live as lights in a dark world. Do this for Jesus' sake, and we pray in Jesus' power. Amen. Now, we're closing a section in Ephesians where Paul's been talking about sanctification. Chapter 4, verse 17, finishes his thought in verse 18 of chapter 5. And Paul's been talking about putting off and putting on. The Westminster Catechism says that sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we're renewed in the inner man and enabled to die more and more to sin and to live more and more under righteousness. It's a work of God's free grace. Justification is that act of God's free grace where we're declared not guilty and we're declared that we're part of God's kingdom family. We learn that in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and Paul, building on that, wants us to understand this growing in grace, putting off and putting on. We study putting off lying and putting on truth, putting off perversion and putting on purity, putting off sinful anger and putting on righteousness. Now, Paul says, we're not only to walk in unity, we're not only to walk in community, we're not only to walk in love, we're to walk in light. And Paul says what it means to walk in light. What does it mean to walk in light? Wisdom. 
wisdom from above, that we would live wisely. We would live not following a belief system or learning a moral code. That's not what Paul is talking about here. But he's saying that God's wisdom will enlighten our path. It will guide our steps. I ran a large conference for many years with Campus Outreach, and I'll tell you that the most attended optional seminar was entitled, How to Discover God's Will for Your Life. Hundreds of students would come to that seminar to know, how do you discover God's will for your life? Many left somewhat disappointed when the message was, you learn to walk in wisdom. The way that we discover God's will is we learn to walk in wisdom. And chapter 5 is not the first time that Paul's talked about wisdom to these Ephesians. In chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Paul says that the eternal plan of God that brought salvation and riches in Jesus Christ was guided by wisdom from on high. And then in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul says something stunning. He says the storehouse, he says the lighthouse, the treasure of all godly wisdom on the earth is found in the church of Jesus Christ. We are the storehouse of God's eternal wisdom. So now he says to us that we are to live wisely in our spirit-filled assignments. You'll see following this, Paul's going to begin to talk about marriage and how to live spirit-filled in our marriages. Then he's going to talk about living spirit-filled and wise with our families. Then he's going to talk about being spirit-filled in our work life and then in our warfare. Next week we'll hear about the call to live spirit-filled in our worship lives, that we're called to be spirit-filled when we come together. What Paul's saying is that we're not primarily called to change culture. We're primarily called to be culture, to be light, to be the new wisdom that's come down from above. Well, how do you walk in wisdom? Paul says four things here, four verses that give us four imperatives that clarify how to walk in wisdom. First, we have to live carefully. That's verse 15. Second, we have to walk purposefully. That's verse 16. And we do this guided by the will of God, verse 17. And we do this strengthened by the Spirit of God. Live carefully, walk purposefully, guided by the will of God, strengthened by the Spirit of God. Now, while it is true that if we were busy in obedient devotion, obeying all the commands that God has given us, we'd be well on our way to being a wise person. But don't you find it interesting that in this portion of Paul's letter, right after he's talked about living gospel commandments, much like the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, he parks this conclusion by talking about living wisely. It's because even if we're seeking God in obedient devotion, there are many situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in, and that there's not a chapter or a verse or a scripture that tells us what does it mean to be wise in this situation. Wisdom from the Bible is defined as making the right choice when there's no clear moral law telling you what to do. 
Wisdom is making the right choice when there's no clear directive from Scripture. One of the first passages I memorized as a young believer was Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. The Proverbs speak of what true wisdom is. True wisdom is trusting in God's ways and applying the principles of God's truth to the struggles and to the challenges and situations I face in my life. I read an article this week out of Inc. Magazine speaking of after the pandemic, business leaders struggling with decision-making. It talked about decision fatigue. Do you feel that you struggle with decision fatigue? It said that on average, the normal person makes 35,000 decisions every single day. Just think about that. That makes me fatigued to even realize that I'm making all kinds of decisions. Well, let me ask you this. Which of those decisions are the big decisions? Which of those are the inconsequential decisions? Which of those have little to do with wisdom? Which of those have a huge effect on consequences? It takes biblical wisdom. So Paul says, we're guided and we're strengthened four ways. First, by living carefully. Verse 15 says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul's reminding the Ephesians, we are no longer to live in darkness. We are not children of darkness. We do not walk in the deeds of darkness. He says just Several verses ahead there, we're to renounce those deeds of darkness. But we're to live carefully and wisely. We're to take great pains and to look at our lifestyle as well as our motivation. John Murray, Princeton and Westminster theologian, says this is what this word, this verse means. Paul bids us to keep a close watch on the principles that are regulating our lives. Live carefully, look carefully how you walk. It sounds strange to hear a former Pharisee speak about scrutinizing your actions. Didn't Paul teach us that we're saved by grace? Isn't, aren't we free from that kind of scrutiny under the law? Obviously, that's not what Paul's talking about here because he's already told us you are deeply loved. You're accepted by God. You belong to his family. I want you to live in the light and I want you to be the light of the world. Live as children of light. Verse 9 and 10 says, I'm always asking the question, what pleases the Lord? When you've been touched by his love, your longing is what pleases the Lord. Now in verse 15, Paul says, do not be unwise. Now that word unwise means that which lacks essential wisdom. It almost sounds like he's saying something that's unhelpful, but what is he saying? He's saying that most of us, when we find that we're lacking something, add it to our lives. And Paul says that the wise person understands the one thing that I am in need of in the greatest way and that I lack is essential wisdom. When you make something else the most essential thing, other than wisdom, Paul says, 
That is unwise. You don't see that wisdom is the essential that's lacking in your life right now. Think of all the things that you think, if I could just add this into my life, my life would be full. Or if I could take this out of my life, my life would be at peace. What does Paul say? The essential that's lacking in our lives is wisdom. Well, who refuses to live Godward, to live upward? Well, the overly confident refuse to live Godward. They're vulnerable to deception. Their hubris makes them vulnerable. That's unwise, says Paul. The overly critical often are vulnerable of distractions and destruction. They see all the evil around them and they think, if that'll just change there, if that person will be different, then my life will improve. That's unwise. The overly defensive who say, I've built a wall around me. I don't want feedback from you and I'll separate myself and live alone in this wall. That's unwise. But in the church, I've found that oftentimes people who do not scrutinize their lives are the overly condemning. They live in guilt and shame, fear, and they feel that if I take an inside look, I will only see just how unworthy I am to God. Paul says the gospel actually frees us to live carefully. This is why pastors and counselors and, and uh, mature believers are helpful for you to go to those when you're struggling and say, I need to make sense out of things that are lacking in my life. We live carefully. Secondly, we walk purposefully. Paul says we make the most of our time because the days are evil. This is actually two phrases, but the way that it's put together, many think it's an idiom where they're using uh, the phrase, make the most of your time and the days of evil, as instruction for how to live purposefully. I will confess to you that many times in my life I've taught this verse in a very limited way. We're all too... American, we're all too Western, we're efficient, we teach the truth that we need to make the most of our time, manage our time, be effective and efficient, and while the verse does say we should see that there's an urgency, that's not all of what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is that we need to ransom time from the bondage of evil. Paul's putting this idea in mind that time is held hostage in ransom and the purposeful person the person that is walking in wisdom can free time of its bondage so that time might be used for healing and hope rather than destruction and disaster children of light understand that we've been given time to buy back time for god's purposes and for God's plan. Fear and sadness and hopelessness and evil can be released when we live wisely, when we walk purposely. One theologian said it this way, the old order is already tottering to its doom under the weight of its own corruption, but the gospel has broken in. The gospel is building a kingdom of light that frees time from its captivity. 
I uh, teach a class at City View Seminary on apologetics, and we use one textbook, Alistair McGrath's book, Why Intellectuals Don't Need God. And McGrath says the most powerful apologetic to the atheist is morality. The fact that morality exists in the universe is a powerful apologetic. And this is what he says. He says that if there is no God, then answering the question of why am, why am I here is only because of chance. And if why I'm here is only because of chance, then there's no such thing as a purposeful decision. There's no reason to be purposeful if there is uh, no morality in the universe. But he says because there is morality, that is an indication that God does exist. And because there is moral consequences to our decisions, there's the fabric of the universe that's put back together when morality reigns. And when we call fallenness and brokenness something that's not supposed to exist, that's an indicator that there is a God. You see, it's foolish to live your life as if your decisions have no moral consequences. It's foolish to make decisions and just think they won't come back to affect me. Teenagers, college students, I want to speak to you directly right now. The text exhorts all of us, but especially you, to live full of purpose. And this means that this summer, when you have more time away, possibly to do things you want to do, if you're thinking, I want to live the way that I want to live, if you're thinking, I want to live as if my decisions have no moral consequences, the Bible says that you are living foolishly. If you want to live as if your actions have no consequence, you're living as if God does not exist. And that's peril to your soul. But I'll speak to the parents as well. Some of you want to work harder and make more money, even if it means that you're absent from your homes when your children need you. And you think that being away will have no moral consequences. The Bible says that this thinking is foolish. It's foolish. And one of the radical things about the Reformation is that all of life is sacred. And we need to start every morning asking the question, how can we buy back our time from evil? I came across a website my wife shared with me that Leslie Glass has put together a website, one of our members, about the importance of making your mornings a redemptive time. I would commend that to you. So helpful to think about every day I have the opportunity to buy back evil, to buy back time from its corruption and its evil. It's to live godwardly. We live carefully. We walk purposefully. But then Paul says we are guided by the will of God. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, when the Bible speaks of the will of God, sometimes it speaks of the sovereignty of his decreed will. Sometimes it speaks of the morality of his perceptive will. And sometimes it speaks of that individual guidance that is provided by the Holy Spirit for believers. 
The decreed will cannot be broken. What God decrees will come to pass. The moral will of God often is broken because of sinfulness. But this idea of the personal direction that we receive, the Bible says to us we can receive peace and we can receive clarity and direction. God does have a personal plan for us. We don't always know it before we see it. Often it has to be experienced in the context of biblical community. But what is God's will for the Christian's life? Well, Paul's already told us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. In Ephesians 1, 17, Paul says, This is what I pray for you, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would give you a spirit of wisdom that you may know him better, so that you may know him better. God's individual will is that we know Christ, that we become more like Christ, and that we shine the light of Christ in the world. You can be confident that we're called to obey and fulfill God's will. Know Christ, be like Christ, and make Christ known. Now verse 17 says, what's the contrast? He says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This word foolish is different than the word unwise. This word aphron simply means moral stupidity in action. He says, if you do not live to fulfill the will of God, your will will just be moral stupidity in action. I told my boys when they're young, that's a bonehead activity. That's a bonehead decision. Paul would say, Aphron, moral stupidity in action. What does the Bible teach us about the contrast between foolishness and wisdom? It teaches us primarily... In the book of Proverbs, the Proverbs were given and written primarily to teach the people of God how to discern God's will in those areas where there's not clear scriptural guidance. Derek Kidner, who's a theologian and commentator, says that the Proverbs were written from a father to a son. There's intimacy. There's personal guidance involved. But he also says the Proverbs were probably the curriculum for the Jewish school where young men learned the wisdom from their fathers. Paul's saying the very same thing here. We're to be a wise community. He says we're to walk in unity. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in forgiveness. And now he says we're to walk in wisdom. How do we walk in wisdom? Together we learn by intentionally listening to one another. Together we support one another by intentionally being involved with one another. Together we grow in wisdom by intentionally instructing one another. Now it is true that worship and the preaching of God's word is essential for you to grow in wisdom. But it's not enough. You need to be studying the word on your own. You need to be in micro communities talking about the wisdom that you face. And you need to be being for others the wisdom that you need. You see, no one gets to clarity alone. And no one gets and maintains clarity without the community. I was speaking to the inquirers class, and one of the women that was there said that, she said during this pandemic she was so separated from people and 
She didn't know what to think. Someone told her about this church. She started watching online. She said, it was pretty amazing. I'd never been to a church where people just, the pastor just opens the Bible and he explains to you what it means and how that should live your life. So she thought, I bet that was just one week. So she said, I turned it on the next week. She's been coming to worship with us for over a year through online and then she came to the inquirer's class having never even been in this sanctuary. She says, I want to join a fellowship. I want to be a part of a community where people help you understand the Bible and how it applies to your life. Just think about this. What if you have an adult child who's depressed and they disrupt the family's peace and you're worried, do you give them tough love or tender love? You need the guidance of a community of believers to give you wisdom. What if you're a divorced mother who's raising children and are unsure about the relationship to an estranged ex-husband? She needs guidance. She needs support. She needs a spirit-filled community. What about men who are battling pornography, wives who are deeply wounded and feel rejected? How do they heal? How do they protect their children? They need a community of wisdom and spirit-filled love. That's what Mike Phillips is talking about, these G3 groups. We want to recognize that it's our obligation as the people of God to be spirit-filled wisdom and community as we carry one another's burdens, as we share our experiences, and as we seek God to heal us and give us his strength. You see, no one comes to clarity on their own. We need spirit-filled community. And that's what Paul says here in verse 18. We live carefully. We walk purposefully. We're guided by the will of God. But if you're like me at this point, I'm like, how are we ever going to do this? How are we going to find the strength to live this way? I make bad decisions. I'm worn out. How am I ever going to find the strength that I need? Paul says, that strength's already been provided. That wisdom has already been given to you. Look at verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to wastefulness. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It's the same words and passage that Paul uses in Colossians 3, verse 16, where he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here he says, Be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, Paul is saying that God has already provided you all the strength that you need in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 told us that we're all sealed with the Holy Spirit. If we belong to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. But he says here, be filled. It's hard to translate it into English. He's actually, it's actually... Present, passive, continuous, imperative. It might sound overwhelming. Let me break that down, down for you. Present, passive, continuous, imperative. What he says is, be ye or be being filled. Keep on being filled. So it's present. It's for right now. It's passive. It's what's God, what God has already done for us rather than something that we do. But it's energetic. It's continuous. It's to carry on. That word filled is often used in uh, the Greek language to describe how the wind fills a sail on a boat. 
And when you think about what makes that boat move, the strength is the fullness of the sail that catches the wind. And Paul is saying, it is present. You turn that oar, but I want you to know you align yourself with what the Spirit is doing, and He will carry you. He will fill you. In fact, he uses another analogy here. Do not be drunk with wine. Why does Paul use that analogy? He could have said, do not murder, or he could have said, do not lie. But here he says, do not be drunk with wine. Well, probably in Ephesus there was uh, the cult of Diocenes, and uh, they used drink and wine to enhance their mystical pagan experiences. But Paul's also teaching us something, that just as the abuse of alcohol causes us to live differently, so the drinking of the Spirit causes us to live differently, to be wise and filled with joy and hope. Do not be drunk. Scripture does certainly warn against the abuse of alcohol and against drunkenness. It doesn't demand total abstinence, but it does say be warned here because this will lead to wastefulness. Be filled with the Spirit, and this will lead to a wise life. So what about you? Next week we'll talk about being filled with the Spirit. But when you come into this worship service, are you asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you? Are you asking through the liturgy, through the reading of Scripture, through the sermons? Or are you waiting for this service to somehow impress you? Do you think that when one preacher preaches or another preacher preaches, you can't hear the Word of God from them? I want you to know. That's unwise. You should be spirit-filled, and you should be asking the Lord, speak to my heart, change me. I want to live in a wise community. Next week, we'll talk more about spirit-filled worship. And I just want you to know that we want to be spirit-filled here. Yes, we're thankful for our liturgy, but we want to meet God in powerful, palatable ways each time we gather in worship thought about how I could illustrate this in terms of an example. I recall that Sandra and I went to a marriage counseling retreat. Several couples were invited for this intensive, and the marriage counselor met with us. He asked us questions, and at some point he asked, do you have a date night? How much time are we able to spend together away from the four small children, busy ministry? And I said, well, you know, um, we're busy we don't have a lot of money for babysitters, and, uh, but we do have a communication night. He said, well, tell me about that. He said, well, Sunday night after we get the kids in bed, we sit down and we have our communication date. We kind of work through our schedules and we talk about um, you know, what's going on for the next week. And he said, how fun's that? <laughs> Looked at Sandra and she was like, mm, you know, yeah. And he said, uh, well, how does it end up for you? And he said, I said, well, honestly... We're just kind of frustrated and angry because we've only reminded each other how we failed one another week in and week out. He said, what if you did this? What if you met together on your communication date and you asked these four questions? Over this last week, what's been your greatest joy? And then you listened. And then you asked, over the last week, what has been your greatest disappointment? And then you listened. And then you said, in this new week, what is your greatest hope? And in this new week, 
What is your biggest fear? Well, we were captivated by even the questions, and so we started trying to practice that. And I tell you what transformed our communication day. We began to talk about fears, sadness, disappointments. We wanted to comfort one another. We began to look at ways that we could support one another. You know, the schedule got worked out just fine. The, the details, they took care of themselves. But we committed to soul care. We committed to companionship in the Lord. We committed to spirit-filled wisdom. I want you to know that God's doing something like that in our church right now. Our pastors over the last three and a half, four years, we've been talking about living as a team and ministering and leading as a team. You know, to be Presbyterian is to be for team. And I'll say for the most part, our teamwork has been a little bit like that communication date. We're trying to figure out how to get things done and what we need. And we've just started caring for one another. We've started talking to one another and listening to one another. It's transforming our relationships. And we're seeing it transform the relationships of the elders. I'll tell you that after we had a division in this church, the new pastor arrived and mostly the elders were afraid to ask a question or to say anything for fear they would be promoting division. And we had this culture of silence. Over the last year, we're learning to talk to one another as elders and listen. We're learning to correct one another and care for one another. We're learning how to be, we're learning how to be soul care companions. I want you to know that's the vision of this church. And God is doing something powerful here, and He wants you to be a part of it. That's what this table is all about. It is a table that's common to believers for forgiveness. It's common to believers for encouragement. It's common to believers for support. And it's common to believers for wisdom. May God make us a wise, spirit-filled, soul-care community. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our midst. We take no credit, but we marvel at the power of your spirit we ask you father for those that feel like they have no one to walk with them in their hurts would you bring wise spirit-filled counselors near them father for others who have wisdom to give and have just been on the sidelines would you move in their hearts to make themselves available that we might be a soul care community we might be a healing culture that says to the world that Jesus loves, that Jesus lives, and that his light is for all. Strengthen us as we participate in this gift of the supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.